I'd like to ask if everyone would stand with me. We're going to read this text today. Revelation 2, 1-7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You've persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You can have a seat. When I got done, um, well, in the middle of my sermon planning preparation, I found a, a bit of a gap between preaching through Ephesians and this next series, which I'm going to kick off next week, which I'll just give a little preview about. From March 1st through Easter, we're going to take the last week of Jesus' life from the triumphal entry to Resurrection Sunday, and we're going to spend one Sunday on every day of that week. And so next week, we're going to talk about the triumphal entry. And then we'll talk about the Monday after that and the Tuesday after that. Every week will be one day of the last week of Jesus' life. But I had, a, I had a week that I needed to fill in something, and I thought, well, at the end of Ephesians, there is this letter to the Ephesians. But it's not Ephesians, it's in Revelation. And I thought, let's just look through these seven verses and see. The New Testament is interesting. It's just made up of a bunch of storytellers and letter writers. If you, if you think about it for a second, the Gospels and the book of Acts, I mean, maybe you've seen little charts like this one, where you, you have these breakdowns of, of how the New Testament is put together. They're, the Gospels are, are the stories of Jesus, and it's largely narrative. It's a lot of teaching, some sections of parables, testimony, but for the most part, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are telling the good news in story form. And the book of Acts is no different. It is labeled history, but it's also just this is Luke telling the second part of the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the Holy Spirit. This is what happens after the resurrection, after Jesus ascended, and it's all in story form with a lot of narrative and teaching in the mix. And then there are a bunch of letters, mainly written by the Apostle Paul. And he wrote them within a period of time, I don't know, between 50 A.D. and 63 or so, when tradition says he was beheaded under the reign of Emperor Nero. What was it like for those churches all through the Roman Empire to get a letter from Paul the Apostle? These Gentile believers that someone runs into their assembly and says, look what, just, look what we just got. It's a letter from Paul. And I mean, imagine the excitement and how they gathered all the believers in, as many as they could, and they circulated that letter around their different house churches that they had in, in the different cities in which these places were sent. 
What was it like to read some of the encouragement, some of the correction, some of the uh, outright rebuke that took place? He took down names sometimes. Look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 2. Now he says, I appeal to, now I don't know how you pronounce her name, Euodia, and to her friend Syntyche, I appeal to you, please, you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. And those two ladies are out in the audience going, oh man, he just called me out in front of everybody, you know. And then there's that letter to the Corinthian church, man, what a mess that was. And, and Paul says, I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you, something even pagans don't do. I'm told that a man in your church is living in sin with his stepmother, and you're proud of yourselves. You should be mourning in sorrow and shame. You should remove this man from your fellowship. And all the heads turn. Ooh, yeah, you. you I'm sorry, but you've got to go now. You know, that, that's personal, and that makes waves. But it made a huge change. And if you read 2 Corinthians, that guy was restored, and things were made right and new. Then there's one letter from James, two from Peter, three from John, and one little one from Jude. Letters written to real churches in real time, in real history. Letters written to real people who were younger leaders in those churches. And then there's the revelation. Many times it's classified as prophecy. It's in a literary class of its own. It's Jewish apocalyptic literature. And it's not necessarily the kind of letter that Paul or Peter would write. But within this book of prophetic literature, there are letters. Shorter ones, but seven, not written by Paul, but written by Jesus through the pen of John. We have letters to these churches. The first of them is addressed to the Christians at Ephesus. It's written some 30 years after Paul wrote his letter that we spent the last six weeks going through. Let's visit the church at Ephesus the Sunday before this letter shows up. Imagine yourself in the assembly of Christians in Ephesus. It's about 90 AD. Like I said, 30 years after this letter from, from Paul came, 60 years after the resurrection of Christ. But let's imagine that this letter, this short little letter from Jesus hasn't come yet. And we're in the assembly of the believers there at Ephesus. Imagine the conversations during their gatherings. It's not been very long. Some people have been around from the beginning. Some people remember when Paul preached and taught in their synagogue and right there in the hall of Tyrannus. Imagine the church at Ephesus that had grown in numbers, that it had its share of struggle and opposition and false teachers to deal with, and you're one of the believers there in this church and you're gathering around and sometimes there's just walking down memory lane. Those were the days, right? Those were the days when Paul was here. He was here for two years and he taught all the time and he just, oh, it was so great. Remember those, remember those handkerchiefs and the aprons that Paul prayed over and they actually healed people? That actually worked once. I mean, I know different guys have tried that, but no, this was for real. My grandma got one once and it worked for her. I tried it. Didn't work for me unless I had an expiration date. I don't know. You know, remember, oh, 
oh, remember that Jewish synagogue leader? Oh, what was his name? Um, oh, oh, right, Skiva. Skiva was a Jewish synagogue leader, and he, he tried to ground. He had, the, oh, those seven boys of his. Yeah, some of those are still around. You might see those at the marketplace. Um, they tried to do some of the stuff Paul was doing. Because Paul had power, and they wanted that power, but they didn't want Jesus, and so they would try to go around doing what Paul was doing. And they, they confronted this guy who had this demon in him. And these seven guys, I remember, they were going around, they were trying to, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, come out of that man. And this was so freaky. That guy just looked at all seven of those boys, and he gets this look on his face, and he goes, I know Jesus, and I've heard about Paul, but who are you? And he just jumped on all of them and beat them up, and he just tore their clothes, and they ran away all naked and bleeding. Oh, man, that fear just seized the whole place, and I couldn't believe what I was seeing. That's when the church really started growing. Everybody was afraid. He was, they were convinced Paul was speaking the truth. He had authority, and, man, that led to that bonfire. Oh, remember the bonfire? That huge thing right out there in the public square where all of those people came with all their books and all their scrolls, the sorcerers and the magicians and all they, those working evil, they came out and they publicly they confessed their sins and they just threw all of those books of magic spells and all that stuff on the fire and they burned it. It must have been worth millions of dollars. Crazy revival broke out in the city. That was some crazy stuff going on. People coming from all different directions, all, wakes, all walks of life, leaving all kinds of sin and, and wickedness, following Jesus. Man, the gospel was advancing. The church was being strengthened. And then, oh, whew, and then it got hard. And then there came Demetrius. All right, Demetrius, remember Demetrius? That silversmith guy? The ones that made the little idols of Artemis? You know, you can still go down and see Artemis, the, 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 the big arena down there. It's, it's a huge place. But Demetrius was so mad because Paul was making all these people not buy his stuff anymore because they turned to Jesus. They weren't worshiping Artemis anymore. And this Demetrius guy was really upset because his income was being hit because the church was growing so much. And so he made up all this stuff. He tried to rile up a bunch of people. He started a riot. Man, that was, a, that was a big deal. Everybody shouting, running through the streets, grabbing people. For two hours, that whole crowd, all they did was just yell, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I'd never been so scared. They were out for blood. Everybody knew what Paul wanted to do, and we were begging him, don't go in there. They'll rip you to shreds. But he, you know, Paul was crazy like that. If he had, a, he had an audience, he wanted to speak to him, but he just begged him, don't go in there. They'll kill you. But he didn't care. He didn't, die. he didn't care if he died. Well, that was dismissed, and everybody went home. But after that, Paul had other places to go. He had other people to tell. Apparently, as he was traveling close by some time later, I remember some of our elders went out, and they met him as he was headed toward Jerusalem. And those elders came back, and they were sad. Those men were broken. They were weeping. They talked to us as a church family about what Paul had told them. And what Paul had said were these things. That Jews and Greeks needed to turn to God in repentance and have faith in the Lord Jesus. 
they said that Paul was, Paul was saying he didn't know what would happen to him in Jerusalem. But he didn't let that stop him. He just knew it wouldn't be easy. He said the Holy Spirit had told him that hardship and trial were coming and that he knew that he wanted to finish the race and complete the task the Lord had given him. But this was the hardest part. He said he would never see us again. Man, I love that guy. He spent so long with us. He strengthened the church so much. He taught us so much. But he said he would never come back. He said he would never see us again. He'd done all he could. He had a clear conscience. And he said he had told us every bit of the will of God for us. And then, and then, he gave those elders a warning. He said, keep watch over the flock. He said there would be savage wolves, false teachers, people who would divide and destroy what he'd worked so hard to build. Opposition would come from the outside, and grumblers from within our own number would come in and distort the truth to create division, to make this movement about them and their needs instead of about loving God and loving people. And then he pointed them all to Jesus and reminded them of what he said, it's better to give than to receive. And they prayed together, and they wept together, and they resolved to keep the word of God. These elders came back and they said, we will keep the word of God and we will keep Paul's warnings close to our hearts. And we will guard the flock, we will protect the sheep, and we will watch out for false teachings. And we will stay close. So we did. And then Jesus wrote us a letter. And it says, Jesus says, I know your deeds. I know your hard work. You've been at this a long time. I commend your perseverance, Jesus says. Jesus says, I know you're on your guard against wicked men. They say they're godly, but they're false. And these, these Ephesian elders, these church leaders, they kept the words of Paul. They were vigilant to maintain right thinking and correct belief and doctrine. And they protected the sheep from the savage wolves. And they hadn't given up. They hadn't grown weary and they had endured trial and hardship, and they'd kept up their strength. But it seemed that they'd lost something, something very important. Jesus said, I have this one thing against you. You've forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Now, First love isn't necessarily the things they loved at first. First means importance. First means primary. First means the top things you ought to be concerned about. You've lost those first things. Jesus said you need to repent. Remember the height from which you've fallen. It's easy to remember glory days and think that you're still there. It's possible, it even might be likely in the life of a church to believe all the right things and still miss doing the right things. Can a church love their idea of right doctrine more than they love people? On the other hand, can a church love people to the degree that they dismiss truth? 
I think the answer to both of those questions is yes. Both are possible. But are there any other options besides staunch or open-minded, conservative or liberal, fundamentalist or tolerant? Jesus seemed to think that we could believe both, but we could believe and do the first things, the primary things, by his power and his presence. He lived an absolutely perfect life while at the same time hanging out with prostitutes and drunkards. He forgave the adulterer and never once compromised truth. We can't seem to find the center line without taking pot shots from either side, can we? The church at Ephesus, I think, had wandered into valuing truth over love in order to preserve their church. They may have been so vigilant to watch for divisive people that they began to get even a bit suspicious of one another. In the letter Jesus wrote, he said, I have this, you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Nicolaitans, we don't know a whole lot about them, but most people think that they were those that compromised the culture into the church. All of the sexual immorality and the idol worship that was going on in Ephesus brought it into somehow in a church kind of a setting. I don't know how those two to go together, but these people tried to do that, and Jesus rejects that. He says, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Jesus said he never hated the Nicolaitans. He said he hated what they do. He doesn't say he hates the Nicolaitans. It's a hard thing to love people who distort truth because it almost sounds like you're condoning what they believe. But it's possible to, believe, to, to love someone who's completely wrong and in error without adopting their practices or their beliefs. I ran across this. A guy named Hugh Hollowell said, every time we use religion to draw a line to keep people out, Jesus is with the people on the other side of that line. Just think about the kind of people Jesus hung around. The kind of people that the religious establishment were very uncomfortable associating with. These are the very people who wanted to be around Jesus. And it was the super-religious elite that said, no, you stay away. Jesus says, remember. Remember how you had this heart that just brought lost people in. Remember and repent. Do these first things. Remember the mission or be removed. Remember the height which you've fallen. Listen, if this can happen to a church that the Apostle Paul planted in 30 years, it can happen anywhere. And I know this isn't an individual thing. It's more of a collective thing. It's a church culture thing that we're all in different kinds of levels of maps and, and feelings about this. But remember the hope in Christ that led you to speak to those without hope. Remember the drive and the desire for growth. Remember the stepping out in faith that left common sense in the dust. Remember the eagerness to serve before you got tired and maybe a little cynical. Remember the urgency and alarm as you looked on a lost world headed for hell. Remember how much you used to care. Remember, repent, and do the most important things. It's been more than 30 years ago been more like 50 some years ago a few people here 
decided to plant a church in this town. And there's excitement and vision. And over the years, hundreds and hundreds of people baptized into Christ, grown to be disciples, sent from here, serving all kinds of places. And we're still making history. We're still affecting eternity. We're still making course corrections to make sure we don't lose our first love. We still need to be sure we... we need to be careful here. We still need to be sure we don't love going to church more than we love those in the church. Does that make sense? We need to love people more than we love this place or this building. We need to love people that aren't here yet more than we love the way we do things. We need to love people more than we love our preferences about doing church. And that's a tight rope that is it's tough to walk. And we need to have a godly repentance that has the effect that Paul described in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, that godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. And he says, see what this godly sorrow has done in you. How, it's, how, much, earnest, how much earnestness, what eagerness you have, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. See, this godly sorrow that brings repentance moves us to action and moves us to do something about the things that break our hearts and break our hearts for other people. And if we don't, Jesus says to the Ephesian church, I will move your candlestick from its place. I don't know what that means in the life of a church. I don't, I don't understand necessarily the theology behind that, but I don't think anybody wants that to happen. And there are enough churches splitting and dying or closing their doors in this country. And you might think that can't happen here, but you'd be wrong. It can happen anywhere. It can happen to any place. There's a church in central Kansas right now that six years ago had 300 people in it. And the new preacher at that time, along with a few hand-picked leaders, proceeded to shrink that church from 300 to 40 in five years. Now you might think, well, that's the preacher's fault. Well, it's the people's fault that kept the preacher that long. I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's, it was the preacher, it was the leaders, it was everybody, and a lot of people got hurt, a lot of people left. And a very close friend of mine just moved to that church to minister among that small group of faithful, hurting folks that are trying to bounce back and do the first things to be a healing to their community. My friend said, everywhere I go, I see people that will say, oh yeah, I used to go to that church. And he said, I've just been called there to heal people, to try and build bridges back because there's a lot of pain in that town. No church is immune from dying if they neglect their God-given purpose. And this is, a, like I said, this is a church thing, but it could also be an individual thing. Has, is Jesus calling you to remember your first love? What heights have you fallen from in your, in your marriage? Remember what brought you together. Repent of anything tearing you apart. Do the first things. In your relationship with God, is it, does it seem stale? Has it gone downhill do you need to repent and do the first things again? Do you need to rekindle something? Do you need to recommit something? Do you need to lay your heart before God and ask Him to light a spark in you again?
and blow a fresh wind over some smoldering coals? Do you need some fresh fire this morning? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus said, to him who overcomes, I'll give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The last people I know that ate from the tree of life were those first two humans, and they got kicked out. But in the new creation, those who overcome will all get to pick of that fruit again and live with Jesus forever. Let's keep that vision, but let's keep the mission until we get there. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this time. And if there's any repentance to be done, may it start right here with me. May your Holy Spirit do something in us that individually or or collectively keep us um, not just faithful to truth, but faithful to love. Jesus was about both. He came in, in grace and truth. And he walked that perfectly while he was here. And he calls us to do the same. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.